Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dalwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this week we're going to be looking at ghosts and how we can use them in Call of Cthulhu. Spooky stuff. But before that, we have some news. In not long, well, a few weeks after this episode goes out, there will be Concrete Cow in Milton Keynes. If you are able to get to the Milton Keynes area, we suggest you do so. Come along, play games all day. It's only £5 to get in. We will all be there. We will happily run games for you. So, yes, it'd be lovely to see you there. And Matt, you've got a scenario coming out. Yes, yeah, it came out a little bit before Christmas in PDF. And I understand that at the time when this episode should be going out, I think it should be either hot off the press or going into stores fairly imminently. My scenario, Saturnine Chalice, which is in Deadlight and Other Dark Turns. Do you want to give a little a spoiler-free hint as to what's in there? <laughs> uh, there? There's a line that I found in a review that I noticed online afterwards from, I think it's Don't Read the Latin is the blog, that said, because on the back of the book it mentions that you go to a house where nothing is quite what it seems. And the line in the um, Don't Read the Latin blog said, the house that what the fuck built. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. That is the kind of review you want. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And one additional bit of news that we're going to sneak in at the last minute. Our good friend David Kirkby, who you may remember as the sculptor of the wonderful Padthulu representation idol. What, What would he call him? He was lovely. He was. But, yes, he has created something new or at least he's created a variant of something that existed before he's sold these bronze cthulhu idols through his etsy store for some time but he's created a custom one it's actually a resin idol but he's hand painted this one so that it looks very much like the cthulhu idol from the call of cthulhu story and it's done in lovely shades of jade green and it looks sanity blasting but oddly gorgeous at the same time Mm, horrific and he's uh, auctioning this to raise funds am i right yes that's right he's going to split the funds raised between cancer research which is what we auctioned the padthulu idol for before and also he's going to give 50 percent of it to the firefighters in australia after all the unpleasantness that's been going on there for the last few months and there'll be a link to that auction in the show notes Yes, it should be live around the time this goes out. So, yeah, bid and bid high. And now on to today's main topic, ghosts. We'll spend a bit of time talking about what ghosts are, what we like about ghost stories, a bit perhaps about the history and folklore of ghosts, and then we'll move on to how they fit into the Cthulhu mythos and this Call of Cthulhu stuff we understand people play. Perhaps, if we have time, maybe even wrap up with a scenario hook or two. Just ask Jackson. There's a scenario hook. Now, most cultures around the world, in fact, I think pretty well every culture around the world has its own ghost traditions. However, we're British, so we will stick with British ghost traditions, particularly, I think, English ones, because they tend to be quite distinct from the rest of even the UK. What are ghosts? 
That is not an easy question to answer, is it? Because even within the English ghost tradition, there are lots of different explanations or ideas of what ghosts might be that change quite drastically throughout the years. Well, what do we think they are? Well, the common factor seems to be that they are manifestations of something from beyond the grave, the spirits of the dead. Yeah. But the forms they take and what they do and how they behave, and even before we get into all the ways they've been reinvented within ghost stories by imaginative fiction writers, within folklore, yeah, I mean, they're drastically different. I do vaguely remember reading somewhere, this is going way, way back, that there were ghosts of the future as well, almost echoes of something to come rather than something that had been. Okay, well, I yeah. guess there is an element of that in Charles Dickens's A Christmas Carol. Yeah, precisely. The Ghost of Christmas yeah. Future. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of different ideas, like I say, in the English tradition about what ghosts are. So if we go back to medieval times, there was very much the idea that ghosts were the spirits of people who were in purgatory, having their sins purged away and somehow manifesting in the physical world. And you also had the more holy sort, who were the saints who had come back from the dead, who were performing their posthumous miracles, which you need in order to become a saint. So these manifestations of the dead were seen through a religious lens. And this sort of changed throughout the years. And by the time we get to Victorian times, a lot of this had been reshaped through the Victorian ghost story. And we have perhaps much more the set of tropes that we see now. uh, Vengeful spirits and communications of people from beyond the grave. These can be these ethereal spectre-like forms. There can be invisible things like poltergeists. The ones that really interest me are revenants. Again, I mean, this is going back to older times than Victorian times, but this idea that ghosts are physical manifestations, that they're not just, you know, things that walk through walls or that you can't touch, but they are perhaps the risen dead, or at least have a physical form. And we'll get into that, I think, a bit more when we start talking about, say, Yamar James, because a lot of his ghosts are very tangible. It'd be a bit difficult to crack a few people's skulls open if they weren't. So Christmas is not long past now, and it seems a very traditional thing to have ghost stories around the Christmas period. And we see it, there's been various BBC adaptations, particularly of M.R. James stories and so on, for a long time now. I kind of got to thinking why this is, and it seems like it's a very dark time of year when people traditionally kind of get together and with family and so on. And it's a time at which people tend to miss you know, loved ones who have passed on. So I can only sort of think that there's this reverie of the past and that that sort of brings up ideas of both kind of wishful thinking of people being with us that have passed on. Or how else do you explain this fascination around the sort of Christmas period? And of course, we see it with Christmas Carol. We were almost in midwinter with the winter solstice occurring in late December. It's a period where the nights are darker, they're longer, and... Also, generally colder, I think it's probably not a leap of logic to say that there's probably higher death rates around that time, just the the very young and the very elderly, because it gets that cold. I'd say a lot of this probably long predates Christmas traditions. Yeah. This whole idea of sitting around the campfire telling ghost stories, trying to scare each other. And yes, you're right, I think that ties in very much with this time of year. I do wonder whether this perhaps comes out of a lot of the pagan traditions, perhaps, that... 
Christianity embraced and adapted because, you know, for example, a lot of the Christmas traditions are taken from Saturnalia. Mm -hmm. I don't know if there was any element of this in Saturnalia. I don't think so, but I could be wrong. From from research I've done recently on it, I don't think so because it was more of a revelry, a exchange of roles with the servants and masters swapping uh, swapping positions, Mm -hmm. light-hearted gifts because the gifts that were given were more light-hearted and fun and joking gifts. It had a lot more of a fun atmosphere rather than anything that was macabre but it seems more of a connection with the past than just sort of sitting around campfires or trying to scare each other i don't i don't see it as primarily a thing to scare each other i sort of wonder if it's more a that connection with the past really i think perhaps some of it does come from victorian times as well because as i mentioned i mean the victorians changed very much our conception of what ghosts were much as they changed what our conception of fairies were but that's a topic for another time but this idea of telling ghost stories at christmas seems to be something at least that was formalized during victorian times that This was a time for, you know, as you're saying, sitting around the fire with colleagues, friends, family, whatever, and telling spooky stories. And, you know, certainly a lot of Victorian writers played into that tradition and wrote stuff, especially for the Christmas period. Mm. And that's something that we see continue through M.R. James, who the start of his career was just at the tail end of Victorian times, but he was mostly later. But most of his stories were written to share at Christmas time, to be read out loud, to be shared with his students and other faculty members at the university. Yeah, it always strikes me as a curious thing, really. And how many of the Christmas stories have to, you know, the, the famous Christmas stories and films have to do with ghosts. So you've got typically a Christmas Carol, Dickens's, but also It's a Wonderful Life. I mean, Clarence in that, he's a, kind of aspiring to be an angel, but he kind of is like a ghost. Don't hear any bells ringing. (laughs) No. Going back to the idea of what a ghost actually is, if we play with the idea of ghosts, for a start, I mean, what comes to mind for each of you when you picture a ghost? Something vaguely insubstantial, least transparent, and very, very dead, and usually with a hatred for the living. Oh, the hatred for the living thing is an interesting aspect. I don't necessarily think that. No, it's it's the thing that comes to mind. It's necessarily not a thing that I like, but it's the thing that comes to mind. I think it's a very overdone trope that you interject a ghost into a story, therefore, oh, it's going to kill someone living. Yeah. But that's not what I do. And you have been watching a lot of Supernatural lately. Just a little. (laughs) Which is pretty much every other episode. It's a malevolent ghost. I've caught up finally. Right. But I I think of stories and fiction in which we see ghosts in all kinds of manifestations. But also I sort of think of family stories of ghosts. So um, in my gran, the house wasn't especially old, but uh, I can remember my gran saying that my grandfather, he was sat there one night and she's like, oh, should we go to bed now? And my grandfather like signals to the, the third chair in the room and he's like, oh, we can't go to bed till he's gone. And she's like, what are you on about? Oh, him. So she kind of got up and ushered him out or something like that this thing in the chair and she's like oh he's gone now let's go to bed and grandpa was like oh okay was your grandfather senile at the time he was certainly heading that way and (laughs) yeah and that's certainly what i would put it down to but all her life that she had lived there like 20 odd years in that house she would talk about mrs bishop who she would sort of smell things like flowery scents or something like that or things were out of place and she'd always blame mrs bishop as i understand it when she sold up and went into an old people's home this was the reason my brother refused to buy her house because of mrs bishop Hmm. you know i can't 
get past the level of superstition that people have. And in the house I grew up, I've talked about before, Borton Mill, which is a very old house, like, I don't know, seven, eight hundred years old. I left home at 18 and never really lived there again. And my parents sold that house when I was about 20, 21. And I was never aware of any ghosts there. I never were aware of anything like that. But after we'd left, all these stories started coming out between some of my relatives about how the place was haunted, how they'd hear footsteps. And aside from me, apparently it was all pretty common knowledge that it was really sort of, they believed that it was haunted. I've never had any experience that I would attribute to a ghost. Oh, I mean, that's interesting. I've had a number. I think I've mentioned on the podcast before, I've lived in a couple of houses where weird stuff happened. These were things like strange footsteps, knocking on doors when no one else was home, weird sounds, accumulations of flies out of season when there shouldn't have been anything there, just odd stuff like that. The weirdest one I had was something very personal. And it's interesting that you mentioned smell there, because that's something you don't normally associate with supernatural occurrences. Oh, really? Well, I strongly like associate that. it. Yeah. Really? Yeah, yeah. I've, I've encountered that num- numerous accounts of it, not myself, but other people's accounts of it. Oh, okay. That's, common enough. that's not something that would have occurred to me. I tend to think of it being very much sight and sound. When my father died, I mean, he'd been ill for some time and uh, I'd gone up to Scotland to spend time with my parents and I knew the end was coming. So I was kind of ferrying backwards and forwards to the hospital and keeping very odd hours. And eventually, yes, he died. I was staying in my parents' house at the time and I remember driving my mother back and going back to the house. And I can't remember what kind of time it was, but we were both very tired and grief aside, you know, we were so shattered that we just went to sleep. And I remember waking up in the guest bedroom in the middle of the night, pitch black. And there were no sounds. There was nothing that I could see in the room. But I was woken up by a smell. And the smell was the smell I associated with my father, his sort of natural body musk as everyone has, the talcum powder he wore, stuff like that, the cigars he smoked. You know, I, I thought initially it was a dream that I'd kind of been dreaming of him. I've, I've never encountered having a sense of smell in a dream before. I remember waking up and thinking, oh, yeah, I sort of dreamed that. And then I was lying in there in the dark for something like five minutes afterwards and the smell persisted. Hmm. And I could still smell it in the room. And then afterwards it dissipated and I went back to sleep and, and nothing else happened. I can explain that as some kind of psychological association or some manifestation of grief but at the time it just felt absolutely real and inexplicable hmm you've talked about an experience in america when you stayed in that hotel matt yeah i was just trying to remember whether i've mentioned it on the yes on the yes, show or not. Yeah. yeah when we went to the hotel in cherokee and then yeah, thinking tiff had gone to the bathroom i rolled over to take advantage of the empty bed and then of course my arm hits tiff and i'm thinking for the next half hour petrified who the hell just walked into the bathroom i'm interested in in both those experiences but i, I remembered matt's whereas i've not heard yours before scott no, i don't think i've mentioned that one before. no so does that make you believe in ghosts i guess the question to both of you well i believe beforehand so oh that, okay so that wasn't a right. kind of oh shit i suddenly believe right so what brings you to believe in ghosts the sheer weight of accumulated evidence or well maybe not evidence but at least accounts Unless one person had a really good idea a long time ago to say, hey, the dead can come back every so often, and everyone brought on board. It seems weird that if it was fake, if it wasn't real, then how the hell do you explain all the... Is it mass hysteria? It can't be. Okay. 
Mm. Well, I, I do not believe in ghosts at all, and that's despite you know, that experience and having lived in two houses where all sorts of weird shit happened. I, a big part of that is because I, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in any kind of existence after death. I believe that this is an entirely materialistic existence, that we are just organic matter with you know some electricity firing around in our heads, and that's us. People believe all sorts of weird shit. Mm. And they'll believe it based on things that they see and, and interpret in different ways or or they just make up. The earth is flat, don't you know? Yes, yes, that kind of thing. <laughs> it's kind of akin to that to me, but yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, but I think with ghosts, I mean, there are all sorts of reasons why people might think they've seen ghosts. As I said, my own experience, I think that was very much a manifestation of grief. As far as people seeing things, I think, yes, the eye is very good at playing tricks. And we, we are programmed to match patterns, to see patterns and things. And we are very good at seeing, say, faces, for example, in places where there are no faces. There is this phenomenon called uh, pareidolia, uh, which basically is that pattern matching uh, facility gone wrong. So you start seeing things like people or, or faces or so on where there aren't any. They're kind of recognising faces in light switches and yeah, you know, or, or plastic tubs. and uh, Yeah, so we, it's the, the most simple thing to see that we... I mean, that's kind of explained, isn't it? Those babies are looking for a parent's face and yes. so on, the two dots and a, a line, it's a mouth. It's not just faces, though. It's, it's human outlines. It's all sorts of things, but we are programmed to look for people. Yeah. And so we see them. So, you know, if there's a murky shadow then we might perceive that as a human form. And I think, you know, for example, a lot of ghost sightings in the UK involve things like nuns and monks, these robed figures, quite often cowled, faceless. And I think these are very easy things to explain in terms of seeing tricks of the light, shadows or whatever, and your brain interpreting those as human forms because they don't have any definite features. I think that's a strong argument coupled with the fact that i think a lot of people it's wish fulfillment they want to believe in ghosts because a they want this sense of wonder that it sort of encompasses and b it promises an afterlife and yeah. not only an afterlife for me because i'll become a ghost and there'll be something beyond death but also it offers the consolation that i can commune with or be with my loved ones who have passed away. I want to come back to that in just a sec. But before I do so, another scientific aspect of it, which I remember reading about a while back. Sorry, I'm pulling this out of memory at the moment, so I may get details completely wrong, is the effect of subsonic vibrations and in infrasound. So there are a number of sites where parapsychologists have done research where they're you know, reputed Horton sites, places people have seen mm. a lot of ghosts. Yeah. And... It quite often is associated with things like underground rivers that no one was aware of before. You don't hear them, you don't feel them, but they vibrate under the location. And this infrasound, these vibrations, can produce a sense of dread, a sense of wrongness, and apparently sometimes even induce hallucinations. Yes, yeah, a sense that's not normally... We have a lot of senses beyond the standard five, and one of them is a sense to pick up that those kind of very low vibrations that we don't register cognitively. Like a, more, a more horror version of the brown note. Yeah, <laughs> which apparently is a myth, but that's a bit of a shame. Well, 
I don't know what that is. Dick Mick from Hawkwind was notorious for trying to hit the brown note. Oh, right, okay. You know, that, that vibrational frequency that he'd, every now and then with his synthesizers, direct towards the audience in an attempt to make people shit themselves. Mm. <laughs> I thought we were on to the Bristol hum again. <laughs> but going back to what you were saying a moment ago, Paul, about it being comforting to believe in ghosts, this is something I was struggling a bit with when I was thinking about stuff for this episode, which is whether believing in ghosts would be a comfort for me if I were wanting to believe in life after death. Because the whole idea of going off to heaven or wherever, some kind of blissful afterlife, I mean, that sounds comforting. But if you think about most ghost stories and folklore and stuff like that, ghosts in them don't tend to be very happy creatures. They are locked in cycles of misery or fear or you know, locked in cycles of behaviour. And I don't know, I mean, that that sounds pretty hellish to me. It's not really been something I'd equate with a happy ending. One of the many theories out there, I think they actually took the name from the Nigel Neal story we looked oh, at yes. before, Stone Tape Theory, is that it's just a recording or an echo of something. It's not necessarily something that's sentient, it's just a piece of history that's just on repeat. That's an interesting take. But what I was kind of getting at was, the ghost itself is a kind of a, a scary thing and perhaps a malevolent thing, not something you welcome. But if you buy into those, it seems to me easier than to buy into religious ideas such as heaven and an afterlife and all those things. So I can't really, I don't know, it's, it's hard for me to get my head around the whole belief thing anyway. But mm. it seems like ghosts in the mythology are a tangible thing or a perceivable thing that people can experience here on earth today that will uh about in the short term but sort of almost evidence of other things beyond that mm. that's my take on it that is a huge leap of faith or leap of logic but well, i say leap of faith <laughs> but i guess it's no more illogical than just believing in ghosts in the first place. If you're willing to do that... Or religion. Yes, yeah, then I think, you know, making that leap of faith of, you know, I see the dead walking around, therefore there is an afterlife and it's good, makes about as much sense to me as believing there is an afterlife and there's good. It's just putting an extra step in there. It all seems to go hand in hand to me, but I don't know. Personally, if I could find it in myself to believe in ghosts, I'd probably find that all the more terrifying. I'd see that as some kind of potential damnation on Earth, some kind of trap for us. If you think of ghost stories and the kind of people who become ghosts in, in ghost stories, none of them do so for happy reasons. Yeah, you don't see, well, maybe apart from the creepy aspect of the kid bouncing a ball perpetually down a hallway or saying, come and play with us, Danny. <laughs> yeah, that has a slightly happy moment yeah, until they've been axe murdered. I was about to say, <laughs> yes. Well, with Bouncing the Ball, I thought you were going to refer to The Changeling, that fantastic ghost film from, I think, about 1980, starring George oh, well, C. Scott. I've heard of it, but I've not seen yeah, it. Yeah, the fantastic scene with the bouncing ball and that as well. Uh-huh. Again, not a happy death. <laughs> if we accepted the idea of ghosts, not from a personal belief, but in the fiction, because obviously we're looking at this from the point of view of gaming as well, what kind of person or what kind of circumstances would lead to a person becoming a ghost. Something about usually unfulfilled endings or goals. They've got something, they the unfinished business, that's the term I'm looking for, or violent death. Maybe they don't even realise they're dead. So it's an entity that you could meet in a story that doesn't realise it's dead and it's mm. just carrying on like it's everyday business. Yeah, there's lots of tropes. 
Yeah, there's a lot of cliches, I think, that appear in stories. I mean, I think there's, there's two things here. One is what we think in real life, why ghosts are there. And the other there is in stories, because like Matt said, that whole unfinished business and, and so on seems to cover quite a lot of ghost stories. Well, and of course, if they've got long hair and come from Japan, then they've watched far too many VHS tapes, then you're screwed. <laughs> Definitely. But there are other possible reasons as well that come out of fiction, at least. I, if you think of uh, Richard Matheson's Hell House, for mm-hmm. example. Yep. You know, there you've got someone who basically survives after death as a malevolent spirit, just as an act of will, that they have decided that they are going to beat death, that they are going to remain a presence on this earth after they die. And as a result... Yes. Too damn stubborn to die. But, yeah, I mean, that whole idea of people who don't know they're dead. Yeah, that one is a particularly chilling one to me. Have either of you encountered a book called A Manhattan Ghost Story by T.M. Wright? No. Uh, A book I read back in the 80s. I've read it a couple of times since. And it's one of my favourite ghost stories. He did a couple of sequels, The Waiting Room and A Spider on My Tongue. There's the title. Yes. (laughs) His portrayal of ghosts in there is particularly chilling, and it's been hugely influential on the way I use ghosts in games, which is he has these ghosts who are just basically part of the fabric of everyday life. I mean, some people can see them more readily than others, but it's this whole idea that you could just be walking down the street and, you know, that strange old woman who's feeding the pigeons by the side of the road or the person who's sitting on the steps outside their apartment building just watching the world go by, that these people are dead. If you see the same person there, you know, that old woman feeding the birds, she's there feeding them every day in exactly the same place. Every time you walk past, she's there doing it. And she never seems to interact with anyone around her. Yes, this idea that there are all these people who are just sort of there but not there. Yeah, Almost yeah. like you'd need a sixth sense to see them. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but this predates uh, the sixth sense by some way. I was thinking all those people in my office that I set my watch by, maybe they're really not there. <laughs> well, they just wish that they weren't. <laughs> That's everyone <laughs> in that building. It puts me in mind of another uh, 1990 work starring Patrick Swayze, <laughs> uh, which I went to see at the cinema. We turned up not knowing what was on and just went to the cinema in Wakefield one night, me and Lucy. So we just joined the queue, went in. I didn't really know. I'd never heard of the film called Ghost. Oh, that was me thinking it was Roadhouse. And then, okay. <laughs> I think we can spoiler this. Patrick Swayze is killed in a like a back alley. But I didn't realise that he had been killed. Like the trick actually worked on me. But also this film has a, a deep meaning for me because I've done a lot of pottery demonstrations <laughs> yes. at the wheel, particularly with like women's institutes and so on. And yeah, <laughs> did that film make your life a living hell as a result? An unchained melody, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say, he still shakes every time he hears it. <laughs> I do. Oh, <laughs> oh, it's just like that bit. Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, god. Well, if he didn't look quite so much like Patrick Swayze, you might have got away with it. it it's something I have to live with. <laughs> Sort of building upon some of the things we've been saying, not that last bit, what then for you defines a good ghost story? If I can just interrupt, he was kind of a good ghost in that. Yes. Which is an unusual trope. Yeah, I mean, you do have, obviously, some ghost stories in which that does happen. You know, like yeah. you know, the Canterville ghost. Is, you know, no, no, sure. I mean, there are some, but it's... Or, or even Casper the Friendly Ghost. I yeah. was just about <laughs> to say Casper. Yeah. <laughs> you know, even at least playful rather than malevolent ones, most of the ghosts in Beetlejuice. I was thinking yeah. Slimer in Ghostbusters. Rent a ghost. Yeah. It's yeah. funny how ghosts are like terrifying entities in some stories and yet kids' entertainment as well. 
Well, I, I mean, I guess we yeah. see it on Scooby Doo, you know, ghosts and so on. I well, mean, that's just, that's just a hostile retail developer. That <laughs> it's always old man Watkins in a mask, but <laughs> but yeah, the Kenderfield Ghost was a huge influence on me as a kid because being a child who had morbid taste and liked scary stuff, from an early age, I was both drawn to and repelled by ghosts because they they were cool and scary but at the same time i had lots of nightmares about ghosts and so you know they were scary hmm. and then i remember oh gosh I'm, I'm probably when i was about seven or eight or so seeing some tv adaptation of the canterville ghost and sort of betraying yeah no, maybe not exactly uh, a benevolent ghost but at least a ghost that you could interact with in a, a sort of playful manner all right and yeah i mean that completely changed my perceptions and undermined a lot of the fears that I had. And you know, I wonder whether this is why so many children's stories do have these friendly ghosts or benign ghosts, because it is a way of diffusing that childhood fear. Mm. I suppose to me it's a, a ghost in a story has to have a purpose. It's, it's very similar in my mind to my dislike of slasher films, that it's just mindless violence. Oh, you're the bad guy. You've got a knife. Therefore, you're going to go out and kill people or violence in many horror films. A ghost, for me, it serves a particular... It's a plot device. It serves a particular role in the film. Either the goal for, like, using the Canterville Ghost example, the purpose there is that they're waiting for the situation to be resolved, to be forgiven, the, the mm. curse to be lifted, and so on. So that's the whole art for the girl in the story, is to get the ghost to be able to move on. Whereas other things like... Yeah, the one that springs to mind, um, Haunted, the James Herbert book, and the god-awful film that was made of it that again everything that happens in that book the ghosts have an agenda they have a very definite end game and everything they do is geared towards getting to that result so it's anything that fits into oh and um, born to the curious that we will be having a look at later again the ghost has a very specific goal it's watching over the crown to make sure that it's not dug up and it's not taken away that it keeps doing what it was doing in life so this may be a, a stupid question then it sounds like for you the most important element of the ghost story for you is the ghost. That's not meant to be facetious because, mm -hmm. you know, we see plenty of ghost stories where the ghosts are almost window dressing and it's much more about the psychology. I mean, a classic example for me is The Haunting of Hill House, mm -hmm. where you don't really see any ghosts. I mean, it's debatable by the time you get to the <laughs> end whether there really even were any ghosts there. Who was holding my hand? Yeah, mm. but, you know, it, it is much more about the psychology of the characters involved. But for you, then, it's the ghost and what happens with the ghost that's important and not the people around it. And the context in which they're created. Yeah, I'd, I'd say for me that's the more important thing. It's Again, it's the kind of weird, the supernatural allure. Regular people, I've got plenty of them in real life, I don't give a shit about them. Really, I'm involved in the weird stuff. Yeah, whereas for me, I mean, you know, The Haunting of Hill House is my favourite ghost story by a long shot. For that reason, it is, I think, a fantastic character study, and I get drawn into particularly the psychology of Eleanor, who I think is an amazing character. I've spoken to other people about it who get frustrated with the book because there aren't really any ghosts in it. <laughs> the TV series, yes, all right, there are you know, thousands of fucking ghosts in that. <laughs> Just a few. It's sort of a ghost story, but not a ghost story. You know, I, I'll come in a moment to what some definitions of ghost stories are that may go against some of your preconceptions. But before we do that, I mean, Paul, what for you then makes a ghost story work? What makes a ghost story work? Has to have chains that rattle or white sheet with holes. I think they come in so many different shapes and forms that I don't think there's one way that they're made to work. I think... As with any supernatural entity, you know, whether it be vampires, zombies, werewolves, whatever, they can be retold and restyled in different ways. 
often as some kind of plot device or whatever. And it's really about, does the book, does the film, does the story work well? I'm not sure there's a particular recipe for a ghost because they do seem to be something that are recreated in lots of different ways. But are there any particular tropes or interpretations of ghosts or depictions of ghosts, ways that they're used, that speak to you, that you're drawn to particularly, or are you happy with anything that's got a ghost in it? Well, no, I think my point was that ghosts appear in all sorts of different manifestations. No, but, and, but I was talking about your preferences as to types of ghost stories. What, you know, course do you, you know, what, right. if, if you see a ghost story or read a ghost story and it really resonates with you, what is it about that story that tends to resonate with you? Are you asking what about the ghost resonates with me? Well, about the ghost story, about it may, yeah, okay. be, it may be the ghost, it may be the way it's used in the story, uh, the type of story it is. Yeah, I don't think I can analyse what makes different stories work for different things. I'm not, I'm not sure I can. I'd have to have a look at a bunch of them and, and think what's been particularly effective for me. I'm, I'm Off the top of my head, I'm not sure about that. Yeah, I was interested in trying to find out a bit more about what some of the key features, particularly the classic English ghost story, were. And so I did a bit of reading around and found definitions from M.R. James and from Robert Aikman. The M.R. James one, he boiled it down to five key features, apparently. And some of these may tie in with some of the things we talked about with Lovecraftian horror in the past. So the first one, for example, is the pretense of truth. So you're telling this as if it's a true story. This is something that happened. You're trying to make it sound real. So yeah, this, for example, with James sitting down, telling his stories to his students and so on, he's telling it in terms of it being an anecdote, something that happened to a friend of a friend or whatever. Yeah. So, you know, it has the veneer of truth in it. And that seems very in line with the kind of Christmas ghost stories that we sort of referred to earlier. Then something he described as a pleasing terror, which (laughs) I can only assume means that this shit has to be scary. But entertainingly scary. Yeah, well, unless either, you know, unless you've got a different interpretation, Paul. Well, exactly. You can interpret that in a few different ways. Now, this almost ties in with what Matt was saying earlier and something I'd probably disagree with is no gratuitous bloodshed or sex. Ah, bullshit. Sex and death always go hand in hand. (laughs) Wow. <laughs> I think that says more about your bedroom life than we want to know, Matt. All right. Well, M.R. James never wrote a slasher. Or a porno. <laughs> yeah. N- that, that we, we know, know of. <sighs> All those lost texts gone. <laughs> Smut stories of an antiquarian. Kind of puts lost hearts in a different light as to what it could have been. <laughs> now, one I really liked was no explanation of the machinery. Oh, that's definitely you, yeah. Yeah, so the idea that... And and I think this applies very much to M.R. James, Robert Aikman, and Walter de la Mer, and other practitioners of this style of ghost story. You were talking before about the idea that a ghost is there as some vengeful spirit. They were wronged, they've come back to do something, or they've come back to issue a warning, but they've got a purpose. And I guess what this is, is that it, you know, it can be something more mysterious or you know, perhaps the word because is anathema to what James is getting at here. Well, maybe not. I can kind of see how he employs that in, as I mentioned before, warning to the curious, that you know why the ghost is there, but you don't know how mm. it's doing it. And there are borderline contradictions in yeah. certain aspects, like when the porter opens the door or... 
what he presumes is a person getting inside, and then turns around and says, like, oh, there's no one there, I thought I saw someone. It's that some people see it, some people don't. It appears as one thing, then it appears as something else. Are ghosts capable of shape-shifting? It's, you just, you're just presented with the facts that it's done this, but you're not presented how it's done that. Yes, you're presented with a set of phenomena, things that have happened. I suppose what makes it work in that example there and a lot of other ghost stories, you know, Robert Aikman is a great example here, of it all making sort of thematic sense together rather than logical sense. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I suppose a bit like the inner room yeah. story from Eggman, where you're confronted with, well, are there actually people or things in that inner room when she comes across the house at the end of the story? Why do they want her to come in? How has the house suddenly appeared here? Because again, you're just presented with, this is it, not the how. One that probably speaks to you here, Paul, because this is something that you've talked about in a number of episodes, that the setting should be those of the writer's and reader's own day that setting it in the present. With James, for example, a lot of what he wrote is about his ancient evils, these things that have been stirred up and so on, but they're always framed with something in the present day, or at least what was the present day to him. You've talked before about the importance for you of being rooted in something identifiable, about how modern-day horror works better for you. And that seems to tie in with the first one on your list, which was about it being a truthful account. Yes. So it might be, you know, I might be harking back to an earlier time in my life, but it's still maybe not absolutely current modern day, but it's it's not hundreds of years ago. Living memory. Yeah, mm. which seems to bring the ghost or the, the presence, because I think we almost want to feel like we're, you know, we're sat around the fire or sat in the armchair listening to this story and, you know, it might be just outside the door, you know. If you want that kind of creepy ghost story, I think having it set in the modern day is more effective to me. But it's also that aspect that Lovecraft talked about, about how if you're going to present outlandish things or Mm. weird things, that contrasting them or rooting them in the mundane accentuates them. Yeah. It allows us to buy into it as well, doesn't it? I can just imagine myself doing that thing because it's, you know, where I go every day. I live there. Yeah, Robert Aikman, on the other hand, I, I read the introduction to to the first of the Fontana books of ghost stories that he edited. Mm-hmm. If you ever get a chance to get hold of these books, I really recommend reading Aikman's introductions because throughout them he pretty much lays out a manifesto for his form of what he referred to as strange stories. But for the, the purposes of these books, he referred to them as ghost stories. Now, it's, I think, fairly notable that a lot of the ghost stories that he picked for the Fontana books of ghost stories, do not involve what we might conceive of as ghosts. That they are strange stories, they are weird stories, they have surrealistic elements, they are unsettling, but they you know, might not very often have what is identifiably a dead spirit in it. Mm. I've got all 20 of those. One day I'll get around to reading them. <laughs> but also I wonder, you know, he describes them as strange stories and we have weird tales with Lovecraft... Are they horror stories? I know these whole genre definitions are very elastic. Now, that's really interesting because the excerpt that I picked out from this introduction actually addresses that directly. Oh, okay. Because he says... (laughs) (laughs) The quotation from this, which I loved, which I disagree with entirely, but I loved, was, the horror story is purely sadistic. It depends entirely upon power to shock. The ghost story, however, seems to derive its power from what is most deep and most permanent. It is allied to poetry. And then he goes on through the rest of the introduction to talk about Freudian 
elements and the fact that he sees the the human mind is operating as 10% conscious and 90% subconscious. And for him, the ghost story, the effective ghost story, is the story that communicates directly with the subconscious, that stirs up the things that are there that our conscious mind might not be able to address, but disquiet us. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, but it's a very different definition of ghost story than you might perhaps see in the classic Victorian stories, where it is, you know, very much here is a, a dead person come back to exact revenge or to issue a warning or to, you know, finish unfinished business. But that seems somewhat parallel with a number of Lovecraft's works where I don't think the intent is to horrify. I think it's more a sense of strangeness, weirdness a sense of wonder mm. and or some of the stories we kind of throw in with horror because that's just an easy kind of band to put it in but i less and less think that's the case for me ghost stories are at their most effective when they bypass that logical part of the brain i mean aikman you know as i've said before is one of the few writers who can really disquiet me another you know what are the better ghost stories i've read in recent years and i you know, i seem contractually obliged to mention this book once per episode but is uh, the way station from nathan ballingrode's north american lake monsters which has got a man in it who's haunted by a city, who's possessed by a city he's lost, and that keeps manifesting through him. And it is one of the weirdest fucking ghost stories I have ever read. And I don't know that I'd call it scary, but mm. just the fact that all the bits almost make sense, but at the same time they're too outlandish to perhaps visualise entirely, for me I find much more disquieting than a vengeful spirit come back from the dead. Mm. Yeah, if I'm recalling it correctly, it seemed if I had a sense of horror or fright at it, it was kind of at the distress of the guy who I took to be kind of a manifestation of mental illness. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that certainly fits. Yeah. But at the same time, it but also a, a seemed to be quite real. Yeah, I mean, a, a, a sympathy for the character, but um, a fear of that kind of happening to a person. So can you think of any other ways that you've been impressed at how ghosts have been used in the story and the purposes they serve, the roles they serve in the story? There's plenty to float around in fiction, but one of the things that I've accumulated over the years is I've got a, well, gradually growing occult library or occult folklore, myths and legends and such. And I've got a couple of shelves dedicated to specifically accounts of ghost stories in various counties in the UK, uh, some of which I've used as the basis for inspirations for some scenarios that I've run, particularly around the, you know, the time of the Civil War with a series of Witchfinder adventures I've written. Thetford in particular seems to have a lot of ghost stories and they, they follow slightly different slightly different moulds. They're not the same kind of vengeful spirit. In fact, one of them I can't think of being particularly vengeful at all. It's If anything, it's just sad. There's a tale of what they refer to as Little Lord Georgie, who was vaguely noble, uh, or at least of landed blood. This is hundreds and hundreds of years ago, so before the 17th century. His, if I remember the story right, his parents died, and he was left a lot of land in Lincolnshire. Obviously, as he was too young, he couldn't do anything really with it. So he was passed over to, into the kind of the care of his uncle. And his uncle basically kept looking at the kid and going, well, if, if you carked it, then I'd inherit all the land up in Lincolnshire and I'd be set for life. He used to play on a bridge 
they had a large house just to the southwest, I think it was, in Thetford. Bridge going over the river and then the long drive going up to the house. And he would play on this rocking horse and he would rock this thing and whip it so hard that he would almost go head over heels on this thing. And apparently the uncle, as the story goes, saw that there was a method by which he could make his uh, make his plan come together. And he weakened one of the pins in the rocking horse so that when he went forward, the rocking horse collapsed underneath him. He smashed his face against the bridge and died. And his vision of this kid on this rocking horse, rocking it back and forward, would be seen by people passing over the bridge. Hmm. Um, to such an extent, wasn't that it wasn't malicious, it was just, holy shit, there's a dead kid on a rocking horse, that people were getting so upset by it that eventually this is years pass, decades pass, and this ghost still keeps being seen. And I think the place eventually became a nunnery on the other, um, on the other side of the river, and the church became involved. And the way that they got round this ghost, or at least they made it so that it didn't ever manifest again, was that they made a deal with it. The church, or the, the local priest, came to the spirit with a bunch of candles and said, you will remain away from this bridge until the last of these candles has been burnt. Apparently the spirit agreed. Then the priest tossed the candles into the river so they would never be used. <laughs> nice. And at which point it's never been seen since. Oh. There's others about Betty, who was a regular spirit at one of the oldest inns in Thetford, that just because she'd always been a part of the inn, I think she had a tragic ending. Her husband committed some affair. She locked herself away in a room and eventually decided, in her desperation and uh, misery, threw herself out of a window. And you, you occasionally hear the sound of her footsteps going across the room and then the sound of breaking glass and then throwing herself out of the window. That sort of plays in with some of the tropes we talked about earlier, with yeah. it almost being a recording of past events, almost like the stone tape theory thing. Yes. Or, yeah. or these mindless repercussions or mm. you know no, not repercussions but echoes of mm. things that have happened yeah that seems a strong one it's either like a recording and something repetitive almost it's not a doesn't have an intellect it's just mm. yeah it's just a vision it's not an intelligence yeah whereas georgie you could potentially rationalize that because there was some kind of interaction there and it agreed not to come back, but there yes, was some quite different. One thing that fascinates me about that particular aspect of ghost stories is why those ghosts are frightening. Because it's not like a, a vengeful spirit or something that can harm you, but it is just something you see, you know, like a recording. And there's almost a Lovecraftian element to that, isn't there? This idea that you're looking at something that in itself is so terrifying because of what it is or how it looks or just the nature of it, that it psychically scars you. And I remember this being, when I was a young child, the thing that scared me about ghosts. This whole thing, when I had nightmares about ghosts, it was always, I don't want to see it. I remember having this really vivid nightmare, probably when I was about seven years old, where I, it was just really simple. I was in a house, and there was a dark window, and I knew that there was a ghost on the other side of the window. And I was just doing everything I could not to try to look out the window, not to see it, because I knew if I saw it, it would be the worst thing in the world, and that it would somehow destroy me. It's a window cleaner asking for his tip. <laughs> but, yeah, it's that, that idea of it just being so frightening in itself, which... When we start looking at you know, more complex ghost stories and the ghost stories that affect us as adults, is perhaps something we don't see quite so much, but perhaps turns mm. up more in Call of Cthulhu, the fact that there is potentially a big sand loss for looking at a ghost. It's not that big, isn't it? Up to a D8. That's not that big. <laughs> That's fine with that. <laughs> 
I've got a 50-50% chance of not going batshit on the kind. Yeah. <laughs> How about you, Paul? Are there any particular ways that implementations of ghosts or examples of ghosts in stories that have stuck with you? Yeah, I listened to a few ghost stories around Christmas, actually, because there were three read by Jim Lloyd in Ambridge Hall on the Archers. <laughs> of course there fucking were. And because uh, I listened to it, each episode and uh, these three and he was going to be doing these readings to the you know the public of, of ambridge and the listeners who don't know the archers is a a documentary on on radio 4 about uh, a small village in britain it's the, long, it's the longest ambridge it's the longest running uh what, what do they call them now Soap opera. we don't use that word oh, yes we fucking do <laughs> no no what, what do they call them? um damn it waste of time no things like big brother um Reality, reality TV show. That's it. Yeah, the longest running reality yes. TV show in history. I'll, I'll go with that. Yeah. But anyway, he, so he read and they, they were put out as recordings and he they were very good readings. So he read The Room in the Tower by E.F. Benson, Lost Hearts, which referred to James earlier, yeah. and also The Monkey's Paw by W.W. Jacobs. Yeah, Lost Hearts in particular is one of my favourite James stories. That one is really creepy. Remind me what Lost Hearts was. So Lost Hearts is about this... Alchemist, magician, whatever you want to call him. Mithraicist in some yes. aspects. Yes, yeah. yes. That's it, but, it's come back to me now. But who adopts children, basically, and then sacrifices them and does yeah. rituals involving burning their hearts, consuming them, to try to give himself eternal life. The children, on the other hand, aren't very happy about this and tend to hang around after death. <laughs> it was weird, that story. Obviously, those elements you just described are weird. But he talks about picking up because he'd picked up two or three children previous in the yeah. story and they're just like waifs and strays and it's like a totally alien concept to us nowadays in at least in britain to to have some sort of child oh I, he was just turned up at my door begging so i took him in it's like what yeah, well i seem to remember weren't they supposed to be the children of uh some gypsy family that yeah. came through and, but still i yeah. mean i wonder if it's called, kind of portraying something that actually would have been credible at the time. I'm mm. kind of assuming it was. I, I haven't looked into it, but that you would have got children just homeless, wandering the streets and just being taken in to work in a, a big house or, or whatever. I don't know. But it seems to portray that almost by the by, taken for granted in the story. That it wouldn't be questioned at the time. Um, yeah, I think British society changed an awful lot on that front after the Second World War. So, you know, the mm. time that James was writing, yeah, it was perhaps a bit more civilised than the Dickensian times, but mm, still had rough edges. Yeah, well. Was it maybe that's also tied? I'm not sure when Lost Hearts was written, but I know that the First World War had a big impact on his writing. Mm. That there was definitely a loss for the kids that didn't come back from the war while he was still at Cambridge. A lot of that impacts again, warning to the curious onwards. Mm. So that, that became a reoccurring theme. So what what is it about the implementation of ghosts in those stories that impressed you? Uh, it didn't really. I found them fairly <laughs> hackneyed. Um, <laughs> I, I think they've got a right to be hackneyed. This is something that. It drives me nuts sometimes, which is when people look back at old stories and complain about them being cliched. It's where did the cliches come from? Oh, absolutely. No, I know I get that. But hearing them in the modern day now, yeah, I think a bit hackneyed. The Monkey's Poor, you know, it's a nice enough tale. I've kind of heard it before, I think. They're short stories with a, a kind of a reveal or a, an ending, a kind of bit of a twist. 
I mean, I don't know that I necessarily see the twists coming exactly, but it's not really about seeing it coming. It's just don't really do that much for me. Yeah, I think if you'd been reading them at the time they come out, it would yeah. be a very different experience. Oh, I can sympathise with that, yeah, for and sure. And certainly, you know, with at least two of those stories, I read them when I was quite young. And The Monkey's Paw in particular, I read probably when I was about nine or ten. Yeah. And at uh, that kind of age, I assume it's the case with both of you two, I hadn't necessarily been exposed to enough horror fiction and ghost stories and so on that these things had had a chance to become hackneyed. So as a result, yeah, The Monkey's Paw, when I read it for the first time, I did actually find quite terrifying. Mm. I saw the uh, Tales from the Crypt adaptation first. (laughs) (laughs) Which I'm sure improved it wonderfully. It was a lot of fun. (laughs) (laughs) Because when you go back and read the original story, that's what you think. This is fun. I haven't read the original. I've just seen... Well, now now surely you think of Homer in the uh, Halloween special. The Frogate is also cursed. (laughs) (laughs) That's bad. I think we covered a lot of the more common uses of ghosts in ghost stories, but I think there's a couple that we haven't necessarily touched upon. One, I think, is perhaps the presence of ghosts or the appearance of ghosts as a manifestation of a character's guilt. We see this very much in, say, Macbeth with Banquo, or the Telltale Heart, I think, is the classic example, Mm -hmm. hearing this dead heart beating under the floorboards. Mm. And this subjective idea that the ghost may not be real, but is still absolutely terrifying to the person who's experiencing it. Hmm. Banquo, I think, is a good example. It's, you know, it's the person's conscience kind of talking to them, perhaps, but is a plot device to manifest that, isn't it? Yeah, and the other one is, I guess it sort of ties in with the whole idea of cursed objects and locations. This is something I think we see an awful lot in M.R. James and also formed a foundation of an awful lot of the classic J-horror films of about 15, 20 years ago, which is this idea that there are just certain objects or locations or whatever that you may come across, that you may stumble across, or maybe you're just being overly curious and dig them out from Mm -hmm. somewhere you shouldn't have. As the Winchesters tell us, if you're in doubt, just salt it and burn it. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, just almost like these psychic landmines that you could just stumble across. Do either of those kind of speak to you in any way, or are there any examples that have really kind of stuck with you? A certain VHS tape when when you watch it, a phone rings. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, that is a good one. Would you say that's a ghost story? Hell yeah, Samara is definitely a ghost. Hmm. But if I was asked what kind of story is it, I wouldn't have first thought to say it's a ghost story. Oh, right, yeah. It, it it doesn't seem to tip... It is a ghost story. It's got a ghost in it and it's a story. But the strap line on the cover, I wouldn't have thought would say ghost story. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. no, I, I would have. Right. Yeah, I, I definitely would have. I mean, you know, Sadako, not fucking Samara, is definitely what? a ghost. I thought, <laughs> so, uh, did they rename her in the American version yes. then? Oh, okay. I've not seen the original. Yeah, the original's much better. Uh, but it involves uh, subtitles. The American version's very good, I think. It's not bad, but, yeah, the Japanese version, I... Yeah. Anyway. (laughs) Our original plan was to do this in one episode and then continue on and talk about how all of this ties in with Call of Cthulhu and the Cthulhu Mythos and bits we can use for gaming and stuff like that. But we've talked a lot, and we're out of time. So uh, this is going to be a two-parter. We will continue this next time when things are going to get weird. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. It is that time in the show once again when we thank people. 
We would like to thank everyone who listens to the podcast. We would like to thank everyone who backs the podcast on Patreon. And once again, we have a lot of new people to thank because of the recent issue of The Blasphemous Tome. So, yes, let's start naming names and giving thanks. And our first thanks go out to William Stowers. And thanks to Martin Girk. I hope I've pronounced your name right, Martin. And thank you very much to Adam Fulton. And thanks to Matthias Rodner. And thanks to Mike Barnes. Thank you very much, Chris Swanson. And thank you, Mick Cope. Thank you, Paddy McAllister. And thank you very much to Kenny Soeti. And thank you to Melinda M. Folk. And thank you, Thomas Monkholt. Thank you very much, Drew Wagoner. And thank you, Jonathan Kenneth Broster. Thank you very much to Richard Brass. Thank you, Dave Cracker. And thank you, Chris Barron. And thank you very much to Helen Balls. Thank you very much to James Rocks. And I'm sure he does. <laughs> and I'm sure he's not tired of hearing that. And thank you to Johan Malmström. And thank you very much to Chris Thulu. Thank you very much to Justin Kahn. And thank you very much to Daniel Carroll. Thanks to Sid and Meg Early. And thank you very much to Stuart Lipley. And thank you very much to the, uh, the interestingly named Tensoon's Shadow. And a final thanks to Matthew Cole. Well, if you would like to find out more about the good friends of Jackson Elias and what we offer our Patreon backers, all of this information is available on BlasphemousTomes.com, where you can learn about the Blasphemous Tome, the fanzine we produce for our backers, and all the other goodies we offer. And while you're there, you can also check out links to our various social media presences on Facebook, Twitter, Discord, and or Reddit, and other places. Yeah, we're, we're everywhere. All right, well, that's it for today. Until next time when we resume our spooky conference, it's a good night from me. Cheerio from me. And a farewell from me. Hello? BlasphemousTomes.com Ooh. I was going to say, I think the ghost of G Plus is still haunting social media and the internet out there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's been exercised. <laughs> <laughs>